So this last week, our nation reflected on the assassination of uh, uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, the, 50, the 50th anniversary of that tragic day. Many of you, um, as I look around, uh, some of you, uh, were, can actually remember where you were. In fact, uh, just yesterday, we had a family gathering at our house for lunch, and uh, reflecting with my parents and with Corey's parents about where exactly they were. Man, they remember it. Uh, like it was yesterday. Uh, they also remember uh, the feelings of fear and uncertainty and sadness that ensued. Um, it, in times of tragedy like that, it, it begs the question of us, why? Why did it happen? What were the motives? What was behind it? Especially with the JFK remembrance. I mean, there's all kinds of theories as to who was behind it or how it happened. Uh, I'm not sure we'll ever get the definitive answer. And actually, uh, it's not the assassination or even the legacy of Kennedy I wanted to talk about this evening. It's a concept. It's, it's a reality. It's a subtext, I heard, while listening to an interview on NPR um, late one night last week. There was a man being interviewed. Uh, it was, the interview was recorded four days after the Kennedy assassination. Four days. And the man being interviewed was a political insider. And he was still audibly shaken. Over the radio, you could hear his voice fluctuating. When he was asked questions, uh, sometimes he would go off on these stream of consciousness uh, conversations. And it was actually one of those streams of consciousness that, that rang true for me. This man, as I said, was a political leader, an insider, and he was talking about the tremendous pressures that uh, John F. Kennedy was under, and actually the last, uh, the, anyone that sits in the presidency of the United States. And he was talking about how people, they talk about how they want a democracy, and yet they expect the president to be able to push through their policies. They, they expect the president to be able to just get things done. And he said, you know, in, in, a, in a nation that we talk about democracy, we talk about checks and balances, he says, I, I, think, I think what people really want is a king. And I was coming home from a, a, actually our lead team meeting on Tuesday night. And when he said that, I had pulled the car over. Something just bothered me about that. It rang so true in my heart. I think what we really want is a king. He went on to say that this desire to be ruled and to have a king, it, he says, it's frightening to me. I know what they want. They want action. They want things to actually get done. They want their lives to change for the better. But then he, he goes on, I've seen too many kings, too many dictators, too much corruption, and the idea of a king scares me. He's right. He's right. I think, deep down, we all long for a king. We long for someone to rule, but so far we've not had a human king, a leader of people, who's capable to do what we want. Why then, after thousands and thousands of years of corrupt leadership in any kind of format, why then, deep down, should we expect that we should have a good king. What if, what if those longings deep down for a good king, for good government, what if those longings are echoes of our origins? What if our longings point us beyond ourselves to a world, to a reign, 
that we were always made to experience in the first place. After all, that is the very scene we have in the book of Genesis. As I mentioned last week, Genesis literally means beginnings or origins. In the beginning, God. God made the heavens and the earth. He made the universe, the stars and the moons and the sky. He made the earth and the seas and the plants and the animals. And he made women and he made men in his image. He made them. This creation talk in the first chapter of the first book of Genesis to an ancient reader would sound exactly like king talk. God is being portrayed as a king over all the created order. In fact, the created world is presented in some ways as his temple, his palace, his kingdom. In the ancient world, when you read other creation stories, it was believed that the gods would send a representative of themselves in the form of a human being on earth to reflect their rule. Uh, but in those ancient creation stories, that ruler was always one, a male, and always two, a king. In the ancient world, creation stories were there to tell you who the gods were and who their representative was. Their king to rule over all the peons like you and me in the kingdom. In reality, these stories are what gave human kings their power over other people. But the Jewish and Christian creation story is uniquely different. In this story, there is one God who created all things and he calls all the things, what does he call it? Good. He creates not only men in his image, but women in his image. And that implies that from the very beginning of the Bible, men and women are God's kings, are his queens, his representatives to reflect his glory and his creativity and his goodness and his reign on earth. There is no other ancient creation story like that one. What a vision. It goes on in the second chapter of Genesis. We see how men and women are the representatives on God, of God on earth. Uh, we were in personal relationship with God, loving relationship with Him and with each other and with creation. These first people were the gardeners of the earth, the biologists, the ecologists. They're the caretakers. They embodied the wisdom and the goodness of God. How could they do that? Because I know I sure couldn't do that very well. How could they do this? They did it by relating well to God, by trusting in Him, by drawing their source of life from the living God. The Bible talks about Adam and Eve used to take walks in the morning with God Himself. Wouldn't that be a trip? In the midst of the morning. God, the King overall, the High King, the Good King, the Capable One, the Always Doing the Best One, that's the one that they were tight with, that they walked with, that they drew their sense of belonging from, sense of vocation from. No wonder the echoes on our hearts longing for a good king are so strong even today. This evening I have three goals. One is we are going to bring our fall series in Genesis to a close today. This is our fourth year in a row during the fall of walking through Genesis. My second goal is that we're going to be rooted in Genesis 49 and bring the story of Jacob and his sons to a close, at least as Genesis describes it. And third, we're going to follow the trajectory of Genesis 49 and have a peek into our presence 
and the good news that is here. Would you join me in prayer? Thank you for giving us your word, Father. Thank you for giving us this testament of how you created us to be. Thank you for this incredibly glorious image of you intentionally creating men and women in your image to reflect your goodness, your character, your rule, and your reign. We recognize even as those things leave our, my lips and enter our minds how far we've fallen. But I thank you for that picture. And I thank you for the testimony of Jesus and the promise to make all things new and to recreate us and to people who live in harmony with you and with each other. Lord, as we open up your word, as we retell the story of Genesis, as we uh, take a look again at these words, change us, draw us close to you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. As I mentioned earlier, we've been walking through Genesis for four years during these fall months each year. Uh, and so in about 30 minutes, I'm going to recap the whole book of Genesis. Are you ready for a ride? All right. So we saw how in the beginning of the beginnings, humans recognized God as king, functioned in harmony with him as his representatives, and you got to ask the question, how did it all fall apart? Sounds like a pretty good, good gig to me. Genesis 3 talks about this temptation by the, ser by the serpent. Our first ancestors were deceived into thinking that they knew more about happiness and what it means to be a person than God himself. They questioned God's good intention toward them, and in doing so, they were expelled from the garden. There was judgment for that sin. And yet, we learn as soon as they were expelled from the garden that God clothes them and shows grace to them and mercy. Well, this first couple, now outside the garden, has a couple of children, two in particular named Cain and Abel. They are brothers. They sacrifice to God, but Abel's sacrifice was accepted because it came from his heart. Cain's was not. Of course, you know how this goes. Cain kills Abel out of jealousy. He was expelled from the land and moved east. And we know as we've been walking through this over the past four years, whenever someone moves east in Genesis, that is not a good thing. Bad things happen to the east. Cain moves east and his seed, which has been another important word for those of you who have been walking through this with us, uh, his, his seed or his offspring became corrupt and powerful and they strived to make a name for themselves. But Adam and Eve had another son. And his name was Seth, which literally means backside or foundation, the strong part of the body. And Seth had a son named Enosh, which means weakness or light breeze. And it's from this line of Enosh, it's from this line of Enosh that God will bring Noah and Abraham and eventually Jesus. The hope of the world's rescue is built on a foundation of weakness. Isn't that beautiful? Millennia go by and the world seems even more corrupt than ever. The scriptures say that people did evil all the time, except Noah. So God wipes every living creature off the earth except Noah and his family and two kinds of animals. The, the picture 
picture there of this chaos of flood is a starting of a whole new creation. God's starting it over. So after the flood subsides, there's Noah and he's got these kids and he's got three sons in particular, Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Noah gets a little tipsy with the wine. Ham does some inappropriate things with dad while he is, doesn't have any clothes on. Uh, and Ham ends up getting cursed. And he fathers the nations that would later plague Israel. Canaan, Babylon, the Philistines, to name a few. And he had this kid named Nimrod. I'm serious, that's really his name. Uh, and, and, and these kids conspire together to build a tower in Babylon to reach up to God. They try to make a name for themselves to be great. And so God confuses their language so they couldn't hurt themselves any worse. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, we see four cycles of human sin, God's judgment, and then God's mercy that even trumps the judgment. Are we stuck in these cycles of endless sin and judgment and grace? And sin and judgment and grace? Thankfully, no. The God who is overall, creator of all, lover of all, judge of all, focused his lens, zoomed in on a particular man and a particular woman, Abram and Sarai, who would later become, of course, Abraham and Sarah. And God made a promise to this family that if they trusted him, he would do the following. First, he would take this couple who up to this point had been infertile, and he would make a great nation out of them. Second, he would bless them and their descendants so richly that third, this family would be a nation that would bless all the other nations. And all those nations would say, who is your God? We want to worship your God. We want what you have. Abraham and Sarah had a son Isaac, who had a son Jacob, who had 12 sons. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all carried the blessing of God, that promise of descendants and blessing with them. But most of the stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the boys, the 12 sons, aren't most of those stories just about them being faithless and sinful and fearful and God being faithful in their faithlessness? God keeps his promise throughout this whole book, even when people do not. And now we get to the end of Genesis. More years have gone by between Genesis 1 and Genesis 49 than Genesis 50 and right now. More time has gone by. And in all of those years, we find ourselves at the end of chapter 49, not much farther than where we began. The descendants of Abraham are far from being a great nation. In fact, they number at this point in Genesis 49 just over 70 people. The descendants of Abraham are far from inheriting the promised land. In fact, they are in Egypt at this point in the story of all places. As far as being a blessing to the nations, thus far only Joseph, one of the sons of Abraham, has been a blessing. And God has used him and his wisdom to save Egypt and the known world from famine. It's here at the end of Genesis that Jacob the patriarch, the passionate and flawed one, comes to the end of his life. And before he dies, he speaks a word over each of his sons. Not only a descriptive word, 
but a word of prediction. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read Genesis 49. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what may befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Now, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their counsel. Let my glory not be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He crouches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to a vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. Zebulun, you will dwell in the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flanks shall be toward Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey laying down between the sheepfolds. When he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Dan shall, be judge, uh, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. For your salvation I wait, O Lord. As for Gad, raiders shall raid him, but he will raid at their heels. And as for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe let loose, he gives beautiful words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over a wall. The archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him. But his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. There is the sheep, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From God your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lie beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors, up to the utmost bound, the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey, and in the evening he divides the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father had said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, every one of them, with a blessing appropriate to him. And then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. The word of the Lord. 
may be seated. The blessing of children, and particularly sons in this, uh, it was common in the ancient Near East. Words spoken during that formalized time of blessing, like this one, were believed not to just be mere words, but to actually have power to change outcomes. So Jacob calls his sons together at a public gathering where he will pronounce these words of power over them. It was a normal setting for such an event, but that's about where the normalcy ends because what proceeds from that point on is abnormal when it comes to ancient blessings. And it's in those abnormalities that we're going to see the meat of the message. Now normally, the patriarch, or when the patriarch would die, he would pre- before he would die, right? He would pronounce a blessing over his sons. But you'll notice that so many of these words to his sons aren't blessings at all. In fact, some of them have the sharp edge of judgment. Another thing is that it was customary to give the firstborn two things. One would be the birthright. The firstborn would normally get a double portion of the inheritance because he would be kind of the patriarch of the family. And that ties in with the second thing he would receive, which would be the blessing. He would receive the anointing to rule the family once the patriarch was gone. Well, Reuben, as the eldest brother of these twelve, would be the one in line for the birthright and the blessing. But as we've seen thus far in Genesis, God has a different way of working. And he often blesses the younger over the older. Reuben, in fact, gets some tough love. Jacob recognizes Reuben's strength and his virility, and yet he says, you shall have none of that. And the reason is because back in earlier, on, earlier on in Genesis, Reuben completely defiles his father's bedroom and sleeps with one of his concubines. In fact, he sleeps with one of his half-brother's mothers. Reuben is disqualified from the blessing and from the inheritance. He deserved execution. That would have been common in that day, but he received actually grace. Why? No, he didn't get, he didn't get the birthright and he didn't get the blessing, but he did remain in the covenant family. After Reuben, Simeon and Levi were the next two older boys. They should have been in line for the blessing and the birthright. But like Reuben, they were judged rather than blessed. They were the violent men who used the sign of the covenant back in Genesis 34 to slaughter a whole community of people. And so their father says, you are not going to get the inheritance. You are not going to get the birthright. Violent men will not lead this family. When you think about that, that judgment against those men is actually a grace to their family and a grace to the world. What if that violent, impulsive nature was allowed to be blessed and to rule over the family, over the covenant family of God? Well, as we go through the list of brothers, the question remains, who is going to be set apart for leadership? Who's going to receive the double portion and who's going to be announced as the ruler of this family? How is it that this family of 70 people becomes a nation that is going to draw nations to know the kingship of God? Well, after seeing the last several chapters, we might expect that Joseph would be in line. He was the one with the wisdom. Uh, He's already basically ruling Egypt, the most powerful country in the world. Why wouldn't Joseph get it? 
In fact, Joseph does get one of the, the two things. He gets the birthright. He gets the double portion. He gets the inheritance, the double inheritance. Joseph would be used to establish the family so that by the time we get to Exodus, hundreds of years later, the people would be, and I quote from the book of Exodus, exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Joseph was blessed indeed. But not blessed in the way that we often hear people talk about it on TV. Or when the guy makes a touchdown on the football team and says, I'm so blessed by God. That's not the blessing that comes from Scripture. Here's one description of blessing. When God is at work in a person and through a person. When God is at work in a person and through a person. And that means that you can have very little material possessions and be very blessed by God. So we know that Joseph receives this inheritance, the double portion. But who is going to wear the mantle of leadership for this family going forward? Which brother would receive the anointing, the stewarding of the covenant? That honor goes to Judah. The same Judah who conceived of the plan to sell his little brother into slavery is the same Judah who walked through the crucible of life and came out on the other side a repentant man, a man who was willing to give his own life for his little brother Benjamin. This is the man of self-sacrifice who is worthy of leadership. Joseph's leadership got the family safely to Egypt. Judah's legacy would be to produce the king that the people are longing for. Now the blessing of Judah in that passage we just read begins in the present situation. His brothers would come and bow down to him. His enemies wouldn't stand before him. He's described as a lion who hunts successfully, as someone that people are going to think twice about crossing Judah and his tribe from here on out. But then the blessing takes this interesting, futuristic form. It begins to foreshadow something in the far-off distance. The blessing over Judah makes us pause and realize that this book of beginnings, Genesis, even by the time we get to the end of it, is just the beginning of something big that God is up to. It's like a seed planted deep under the earth that one day is going to break the surface and be a blessing to the world. It talks about the scepter which kings hold as symbols of their sovereignty and rule. It won't depart from this family lineage until something named Shiloh comes. Uh, this passage has been notoriously difficult to translate. But more scholars, or most scholars agree that this is not referring to like the place Shiloh or some dude named Shiloh. It's, it's literally translated as one to whom it belongs. That's, this is what it means. The lineage of Judah would hold the scepter or be in, in rule over the kingdom until the rightful owner shows up to take it on himself. Now, King David himself, the great king, would come from the line of Judah. He's Israel's greatest king. He's the man who's described as being after God's own heart. But not even David could deal... Um, with the fundamental sorrows and struggles of human life. Not even David uh, could push all of his policies through, and not all of David's policies were good. Even David couldn't stop death. In fact, he was known to be a warrior, which means he's pretty much a master of death. So begs the question, what hope is there? If we're all longing for this king and it's supposed to come from Judah, we all recognize that the world is broken and that we're broken. 
Is there anyone who is able to fix it? Is there anyone trustworthy enough for us to follow? Is there anyone powerful enough to actually do something about the broken world? And if someone actually had said power to do all of these things, oh my goodness, would that power corrupt them? Are they humble enough to use that power for good? The Jewish hope of Genesis is yes. The Christian hope of Genesis is yes and amen in the person of Jesus. There's a scene in all four of the Gospels where Jesus comes into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. We read it on Palm Sunday. He comes in on the donkey's colt. And everyone's saying, Hosanna, basically save us. Oh, our king is here. Before Jesus actually comes into Jerusalem, though, he sends his disciples to go get this donkey. And here's from Luke 19, 29-35. It says, When he approached Bethphage of Bethany, and near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners said to him, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And one of the things that I've been helping us to understand when we're reading Scripture is that there's something going on called an economy of words. Very rarely in Scripture do you see uh, wasted words. So why on earth, in these few short sentences... Do we have references to tying and untying and tying and untying? Like we didn't, we get it, Luke. Why are you telling this over and over again that they're tying and untying and tying and untying this cult of a donkey? I think Luke is trying to tell us something. He's referring to Genesis 49, where Jacob blesses Judah. Judah's descendant would tie his donkey's colt to the choice vine, the vine his code for Israel. Israel's ultimate ruler and savior would come from the line of Judah. David came from the line of Judah, which means Jesus is now making a statement about his identity as the true king of Israel. After his resurrection, Jesus shows up in a vision to St. John uh, in his book that he wrote, Revelation. And in that revelation, Jesus is portrayed as what? The Lion of Judah. He is the one that history points to. He is the promised king alluded to in 49, Genesis 49. He's the one that the world has been waiting for. He's the one that I've been waiting for. And all those echoes in our hearts for someone to rise up and lead, they're fulfilled in Jesus. On this Christ the King Sunday, we recognize that Jesus is the one who would rule, but also do it humbly. He's the one who would defeat our enemy death by dying on a cross. He's the one who calls us to lead or to follow, to obey. But he's also the same king that washes people's feet. He's the king we can trust. He's the one who can put things right. And we see that even at the end of Genesis, we are just at the beginning of this promise. So I encourage you. I encourage you 
Come and lay your burdens before the one that may lift you. Come and lay your pride before him who can exalt you. Come lay your sin before him who may forgive and restore you. Come bring your ailments before him that he may heal you. Come lay your loyalty and your commitment before him because it is safe. He will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus calls, come. 